Business owners are cluing into the fact that Bitcoin is here to stay, but its adoption is only about where internet adoption was in the mid-90s. In other words, there's still a ton of upside and opportunity. If you want to learn how other business owners and entrepreneurs are using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses so that you can too, stick around at the end of this episode to hear the trailer for my newest podcast, Business Bitcoinization. And now, on to today's episode. Today on the podcast, we're talking cultural agility. Welcome to the Life as Leadership podcast, where leaders gather to grow together. I'm your host, Josh Friedemann, and our guest today is a distinguished professor of international business and strategy at Northeastern University. She's authored award-winning articles and books, including her most recent book, Build Your Cultural Agility, The Nine Competencies of Successful Global Professionals. She's been a frequent expert guest on CNN and is an instructor for a LinkedIn learning course entitled Managing Globally. She co-founded a public benefit corporation, Skillify, to help foster cultural understanding, and she holds a PhD from Penn State University in organizational psychology. Here is Paula Kellajuri. Paula, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you, Joshua. So I'd like to start off every single interview with a few questions that help us to get to know you better as a leader and give us some insight for our own lives. You ready for these? Sure. Let's do it. What is some lesson, saying, or experience that continues to influence your leadership to this day? Probably the most pivotal experience that was life-altering that still is with me to this day was a study abroad experience when I in 1987 when the market crashed and I was in Italy. And you know what? Every other kid at the school could call home and mom and dad sent money. I didn't have that luxury. <laughs> I love my mom and dad dearly, but they said, sweetheart, get a job. But as a function of that really powerful experience, I ended up having a very rich developmental experience, which later turned into what ended up being my PhD thesis and now my career. So I think my leadership lesson is don't look at challenges as adversity, look at them as opportunities to learn and grow and push yourself and challenge yourself. Use three descriptors to finish this sentence. A leader is? Courageous, authentic, transparent. What is a question that leaders should be asking either themselves or others? How much time am I really spending understanding the situation and the environment I'm in and the people that I'm with? I think too many leaders today kind of rely on their gut and what their gut is doing is, is using their own stored memories. And as we know, because the world is becoming so much more complex and in a multicultural environment, sometimes those gut reactions are wrong. So I I kind of would like to see us push leaders to slow it all down and really get to know the people they're with and the situations they're in. What's a book that you would recommend to leaders? I really like Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. It's one of those books that is so helpful in understanding the fundamentals of how our, our brains are wired to misread situations and what we can do to address those. I think it's, it's critical, especially you know, for what we're talking about, especially when we're in a multicultural environment. If you could get every listener to start doing something this week to help them be a better leader, what would that thing be? I think it would be ask two more questions in any situation you're in. No matter what your natural level of curiosity, because our world is becoming so much more complex, 
our curiosity rather needs to dial up. And that's actually a, just a natural tendency. So my hope for everyone is that if you kind of get into the habit of wherever your natural limit is, ask two more questions that will get a little more information about the situation you're in and the people you're with. And we have our final arbitrary but insightful question, which is this. As a general life principle, is it better to ask why or why not? I like why not, because I like to believe that, especially in leadership, that we can offer vision and we can offer hope and possibly really change the course of situations, whether within our organizations, the communities we're in, the world, whatever, whatever our corner of the earth is. So I think, you know, why not, right? We'll be back with the rest of our interview right after this. As the leader of your organization, you have a lot on your plate. You work most of your day, leaving you little time to think about your own development. There's a resource for you, and it's called the Leadership Action List. Get the best leadership development tips for leaders by leaders at leadershipactionlist.com. The best news? It's free. Once again, for a year's worth of weekly leadership development, download the Leadership Action List at leadershipactionlist.com. Well, Paula, we're here today to talk about your new book, Build Your Cultural Agility. You shared a little bit at the beginning about what piqued your interest about culture and how to operate effectively in other cultures or with people from other cultures. Could you share with us a little bit about the book, but also how you started that journey, you said, into your academic research as well as into your career today? Yeah. So I shared with you my 1987 experience. The part that I I kind of glossed over was... When I returned after studying abroad that semester abroad, I was finishing up my degree in psychology, and some psychology professor said, Paula, what's wrong with you? You seem sad, mopey, depressed. You know, something's up. I said, yeah, I just don't feel like myself anymore. I, I I can't get comfortable in the situations that I'm in anymore. And they said, well, if it had such a powerful experience on you, why don't you study it? So I always laughed at my grad school applications that I wanted to study what makes people effective living and working internationally. And I want to know how they change from deep developmental cross-cultural experiences. My joke is that 30-something years later, I'm still studying what makes people effective living and working internationally and how they change from deep developmental cross-cultural experiences. So Joshua, the, the, the book was kind of a set of my research, but my research and my practice and what research has found and what practice has found make people very successful in multicultural environments. And multicultural could be anything. It's not, you know, getting on a plane and going somewhere. It could be you're in a multi-generational situation. It could be that you're with people who are from a different profession. You know, anything, you know, I mean, demographic difference. So the motivation behind the book was to say, hey, look, it, we're, there, there are tangible ways we can be comfortable and confident and successful with anyone in any who is demographically different. So that, that was the motivation. That was the process of, of how I got there. So in a little bit, I'm going to be getting into learning from you the nine competencies that culturally agile professionals need to have develop in their lives. But first of all, and this may be connected to it, so if so, we can just go ahead and get into them. But I'd, I'd love to know just some some simple ways to figure out how comfortable you are in different types of situations, whether it's demographics or culture, where things are different, how, how comfortable you are in a few ways to begin getting more comfortable in situations that feel foreign to us. It's interesting the, the way you ask that question. You know, how do you know like when we're comfortable? 
And, and it, it's interesting because it, there's a there's a fundamental human difference given our, the way our bodies handle serotonin and dopamine that when we're placed in any situation of novelty, some people just embrace it. They're like, yes, this is great. You know, give me extreme skiing or extreme snowboarding or extreme travel or extreme culturally different situations. They love being in environments where they're meeting new people or trying new food. So that's a kind of one extreme. The other natural tendency is like, nope, give me familiarity, <laughs> give me predictability, give me structure. I don't like any little bit is, is a, a challenge. So one of the big themes in the book, that especially during the, the first of the three parts of the book, is understand yourself at a very deep level and what we need to do with, with sort of building out that tolerance of ambiguity is you move it up slowly. When we found with the research, if we put somebody in an extreme situation that was extreme for them, so extreme for one person is not extreme for another, but an extremely novel situation for them, it actually did more harm than good for their cultural agility. So the idea is exactly what you said, and that is understand kind of where you start to just sense that anxiety, oh, things aren't predictable, things are a little bit too different. And then, you know, make sure it's not causing you kind of hyper anxiety, but if it's just causing a little discomfort, go for it and, and really try it. And everybody's, everybody's start point is a little bit different. I'd be interested to hear any thoughts you have on things that we may be doing that don't jive with other cultures, especially any number of people are listening to this podcast today. And some people spend a lot of time working in a particular geographic area. Other people are spending a lot of time in Zoom meetings with other people, whether they're in sales or whether they're receiving calls from salespeople all over the world. There are incredible opportunities to do business with people in different cultures. Primarily, we have an American audience. So are there any things that Americans tend to do or maybe uh, even within different cultural subsets where we're doing things that we don't realize that it may be insensitive or not coming across as we would like them to come across? Your podcast isn't long enough for us to go through all of them, but, but I could give you some, some examples. It's one I'm doing right now. If, for those of you who are watching this, I'm smiling, right? So Americans have a tendency to smile a lot. As a child, I was socialized like a lot of Americans were. Hey, honey, why aren't you smiling? What's wrong, right? So we were socialized as sort of our default expression is to smile. We smile at each other's. We smile to strangers. In many other cultures around the world, not all, but some, that's considered odd, strange unusual. You might look a little bit kind of lacking credibility because you're smiling for no particular reason. It kind of looks a little little nuts in some cultures. Basic 101, right? You, you, you smile. You mentioned Zoom calls. So I always love the, the Zoom calls, especially with my colleagues in more formal cultures. Americans tend to be very informal. So when we get on a, a call with an American, my American colleagues, and it doesn't phase me, they could be wearing hoodie sweatshirts, eating their breakfast cereal, having, you know, whatever, whatever having their cats jump on them. What, you know, it, just, it doesn't phase us because we appreciate individuality and we appreciate informality. And frankly, it's just efficient to eat your breakfast while. <laughs> but for cultures that are more formal, they would view that and say, this person's not taking this meeting very seriously if the cat's jumping on them while they're eating their breakfast cereal. So there's there's just another difference. That, you know, there's so many. Uh, silence is, I'll wrap it up at that one, but, but silence is another great example. In some cultures, silence means the person has disengaged. In other cultures, silence means the exact opposite. It means the person is engaged. 
in some cultures, speaking over another person is considered the way you show engagement. It's like a dance and you're flowing with the person. And the other extreme, talking over someone, is considered incredibly rude. So we we need to better understand the situations that we're in in order to gain trust, earn credibility, collaborate, communicate. And those those are just socialized differences. And I never actually heard the talking over versus not talking over. I didn't realize that there are cultures where talking over was kind of that ebb and flow. I like that idea. And definitely one side of my family is much more like that than the other. So I think even within the United States, obviously, you're seeing multiple different types of cultures and and expectations, things like that. Now, the next thing is nine competencies culturally agile professionals must have and how to develop them. I'd love to hear what these nine are and maybe if there are some that you think require a little bit more explanation if you could go into some of that as well. Sure, happy to. A nice way to think about the nine competencies is that they sort of fall into three even buckets. You know, one bucket is around how you manage yourself whenever you're in a novel environment. Another bucket of competencies is how you manage relationships when people are demographically different from you. And the third is how you manage the situation when you're in an environment that's new and different. With the first one, it actually goes back to what we spoke about earlier, and that is, you know, people have difference in terms of how their brains react to being in situations of novelty. Some people embrace it. Some people are nervous about it. So one of the competencies is tolerance of ambiguity, which is the one I chatted about earlier. Resilience things tend to go wrong is another one. <laughs> they tend to go wrong when you're, you're going to make more mistakes when you're out of your comfort zone. And that has to be part of the reality of growth and development. So, so resilience is important. Curiosity, we spoke about that one earlier. So always asking additional questions. So it's the self-management, relationship management, that perspective taking and empathy is so critical. Humility, probably the granddaddy of those competencies and how you foster relationships. That's the kind of that relationship building side. And, you know, sorry, it's a long-winded answer, but the third one is the, you know, those task management competencies, which this is where a lot of people trip up because they think, oh, I'm in a multicultural environment. I need to adapt. Adapting is only one of the three possibilities. There's other situations where you don't want to adapt. You actually want to do the opposite of adapting. You want to convince everyone to do things your way. It could be safety. It could be ethics. It could be production schedule. It could be, you know, pick the issue that is important either to you or your organization. And it's it's persuasion and motivation. So adaptation is one where you comport yourself to, to the other's expectations. The, the other one is that idea of holding the standard. It's cultural minimization. Third one is saying, okay, look, it. it's not going to be my way. It's not going to be your way. It's not going to be anyone in the group's way. We're going to create this new culture that's uniquely ours. And our team culture is not going to look like anyone else's team culture. We're going to have our own rules, our own norms, our own behaviors, our own you know, stories. And what we're finding is that great global leaders toggle across those three. And they know they can read the environment and then respond as needed with one of those three. So for the person who is not on those Zoom calls, not interacting with people in other countries, we've already talked about this a little bit. How, how do you begin taking some of these concepts and applying them to less extreme situations, perhaps, where you're dealing with people of slightly different cultural backgrounds in the United States or even maybe different generations? It's the exact same 
rules that apply. You know, you had mentioned about your family, you know, like one side of your family, they talk over each other to show engagement. The other side of the family lets people speak. It's how we were all socialized. That's all cultural difference is. It's how we were socialized. And then you think about, well, what socializes you? Your, your generation socializes you. Your country socializes you, whether you were born in and, you, you know, your, your listeners are in the United States, so the South or the North or, you know, on one of the coasts or were you born and raised in a rural community, an urban community? All of these things have kind of these layers of difference. What we found is that the most fundamental thing, regardless of the nature of the difference, the most fundamental thing that humans do, especially when they're under situations of stress, is they cling to familiar it's not xenophobic. It's not racist. It's not, and it's just familiar. We go directly to what feels the most comfortable. We can't tolerate more ambiguity or more novelty. So one of the pushes that we encourage people to do, regardless if you're, you know, never even step out of your hometown, is to kind of push against that desire to seek familiar and spend some time trying to find similarity with someone who's demographically diverse. So like, for example, I'm a university professor and we do this program with my students where they partner with students who are from a different country, but they're they're studying in the United States and they meet throughout the course of the semester. And the only thing they need to talk about is within 30 minutes coming up with something they have in common. That's it. And it's amazing how what our research found in terms of heightening the sense of belonging, heightening cultural agility, just from that simple act of finding something someone has in common. And that's true if it's generational, gender, professional difference, whatever it might be. And I'm curious, as you've worked with students or maybe even done this in professional context, have you found any additional ways or creative insights that could help people who, when they just heard you describe that, they thought, hey, that sounds interesting to me. What are the next steps? You know, it's funny. It's not as easy as it sounds to begin that conversation. That's why we kind of like to do it in a university environment because it's safe and and it's, it's structured and the like. There are a lot of techniques that you can use, little behavioral hacks, if you will, to start to build your cultural agility. If it's okay, Joshua, I might share with your viewers that there's a, a free website that they can go on called My Guide, and it's spelled in a funny way. It's M-Y-G-I-I-D-E. So the idea is we're helping people see eye to eye. The reason I'm mentioning this myguide.com website is that you can go on there, assess your cultural competencies, assess your cultural values, and then learn lots of these techniques of how to bridge the gap in the situations you're in or help build out your competencies. I think your viewers would really enjoy it. Before we finish up today's interview, I'd love to hear from you any final thoughts, whether it's something that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet or something you just want to make sure that you are able to reiterate from our conversation before we finish up this interview portion. And then I want to toss it back over to you for any additional insights on where people can go in addition to myguide.com. As you and I are, are having this conversation, we're coming out of COVID in the United States and we're starting to socialize again. I think one of the things we need to realize is that Social skills atrophy at a, at a pretty alarming rate. So after spending almost a year and a half, not quite, but almost, in somewhat isolation, getting back out there 
is going to feel like a novel experience. And again, remember, humans under situations of novelty cling to familiar, situations of anxiety cling to familiar. So we want to make sure that as we're sort of getting back out there, meeting people, talking to people, that we really do push ourselves to not just kind of spend time with people who are demographically similar. Just in, in terms of what's happening in our country right now, we, we need authentic conversations with people who are different from us. And, and it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Everyone will be okay. Well, I'll get through this, right? But, uh, but realize it's not going to feel the most natural at first. Before we finish up the interview for good here, I, lo- I appreciate the, the insights you've just given us here. Before we finish up the interview and say goodbye, where else, if anywhere, in addition to myguide.com, would you like people to go to find out more about you and the work that you're doing? So I, I'm available. I, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. I, I try to post periodically various things. I'm posting lately a lot on diversity and inclusion initiatives, organizational culture and how organizational culture is changing as a function of not going into work as much. I post quite a bit, of course, on on cultural agility and how to build cultural agility. I also have a LinkedIn learning class on managing globally. So if you have a LinkedIn uh, learning subscription that that's available, the book is a, is a resource, of course. And my guide, you know, kind of offering this to your viewers and listeners it's a pre-release, but new features are being added. It's, it's going to be a really nice resource going forward. It is now, but even better in the future. <laughs> Paula, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Oh, my pleasure, Joshua. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's interview with Paula. If you did, I encourage you to see more of what she's doing at myguide.com. That's M-Y-G-I-I-D-E.com. You can find that link in the show notes below or at lifeasleadership.com. Now, one thing Paula mentioned today is clinging to the familiar. That's a temptation for all of us. We like to do things that we're used to because it's comfortable. But if you want some things that can help you to break from the familiar and help you to develop in your own leadership role, I encourage you to download the free leadership action list. This is 52 actions you can be taking, one for every single week of the year, that will help you to break from the familiar and try to incorporate some new ideas, some new practices into your leadership. If you want to check that out, once again, go to leadershipactionlist.com. Until next time, keep living and leading well. Hey, thanks for checking out this trailer for the Business Bitcoinization Show. My name is Josh Friedemann, and I'll be with you each episode interviewing business owners about how they're using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses. You might be wondering about the name, and I'll get to that in just a second. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about the show and who it's for. Unless you've lived under a rock for the last decade, you've heard of Bitcoin by now. And if you're like me, you heard about it a while ago, but didn't do anything about it until the last couple of years. Then one day, for whatever reason, it finally clicks. And after that, you enter the Bitcoin rabbit hole, as they say. And the deeper you get, the more you see the value of Bitcoin. But you know, maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you don't know much about Bitcoin, but are interested in learning more. Either way, this show can help you. Each episode will introduce you to an executive or entrepreneur who's using Bitcoin, the hardest money on planet Earth, to improve their life and their business. So, what's with the name? Well, it's a play on the term hyper-Bitcoinization, which is used to describe the eventual rapid adoption of Bitcoin as other currencies get weaker and weaker in relation to it. 
When you compare a seemingly never-ending supply of dollars to a hard cap of 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist, it feels like only a matter of time until hyper-Bitcoinization happens. The good news is we have the opportunity to be on the front lines of creating a new and frankly better system. Whether you're already sold on Bitcoin and it feels like I'm preaching to the choir, or you're curious to learn more, Business Bitcoinization will help you understand how you and your business can be prepared to take advantage of the massive productivity and wealth that Bitcoin will enable. If Business Bitcoinization sounds like a show for you, go ahead and subscribe. Obviously, you can subscribe in whatever podcast app you're using right now, or go to www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. Once again, that's www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. I'm looking forward to sharing more soon, and until then, keep living and leading well.